Pastor Chris's podcast. So the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, raise your staff and strike the ground. The dust will turn into swarms of gnats throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. When Aaron raised his hand and struck the ground with his staff, gnats infested the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. All the dust in the land of Egypt turned into gnats. Pharaoh's magicians tried to do the same thing with their secret arts, but this time they failed. And the gnats covered everyone, people and animals alike. This is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He wouldn't listen to them, just as the Lord predicted. Then the Lord told Moses, Get up early in the morning and stand in Pharaoh's way as he goes down to the river. Say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go, so they can worship me. If you refuse, then I will send swarms of flies on you, your officials, your people, and all the houses. The Egyptian homes will be filled with flies, and the ground will be covered with them. But this time, I will spare the region of Goshen, where my people live. No flies will be found there. Then you will know that I am the Lord, and that I am present even in the heart of your land. I will make a clear distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will happen tomorrow. And the Lord did just as he had said. A thick swarm of flies filled Pharaoh's palace and the houses of his officials. The whole land of Egypt was thrown into chaos by the flies. Um, before I get started with the message, I just wanted, I should have announced it right after the children's moment, but we do have children's church today, and Kayla and DJ have prepared, so if you have uh, wanted to, to attend, you can go now. Um, we just gotten out of the habit of, you know, having them come down to the front and then having them go out, so I, we forgot to announce that. I apologize. <clears throat> Y'all have fun. Y'all learn about Jesus, okay? We're going to try to learn about him too. <laughs> Ancient Egypt was an empire that had thousands of gods. They believed they protected their way of life and made them great. And in their pride and arrogance, as Romans 1.25 explains, they traded the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and serve things God created instead of the Creator Himself. The God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, our God, the only God that, that we read about in the Holy Bible, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the Egyptian gods evolved over time. It's been kind of interesting to me to do a little research on them, but sometimes it's hard to understand about the gods that the ancient Egyptians had because they changed from century to century. 
whenever a, a new pharaoh would come into power or sometimes when the empire would, would change or a new dynasty began, a god might evolve and change. So, for instance, a, a god who was depicted as being the god of the flies might change to become a vulture and then change again and become a snake over the course of many centuries. These gods could change because they weren't really gods at all. They were only the imaginations of people. They were created to serve the empire or Pharaoh's purposes, and they were wielded as a tool to teach the people or make the people believe certain things. When God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, he said, my name is Yahweh, which though it is difficult to translate, it means something like, I am who I am. In other words, no one gets to make up my character or who I am or what I do. I am, I am real. I am eternal. I make up my own mind. I don't change my mind. And you don't make me what you want me to be. I made you, and therefore you must conform to the person I made you to be, not the other way around. And so Yahweh decided to deliver his people out of the hands of the Egyptians, and in order to do it, he poured out justice on this evil empire of the Egyptians to prove that he is the supreme Lord of all, and that all idols and all false gods that people worship are really nothing. Through ten plagues, God shattered every false notion of the Egyptians and brought Pharaoh's empire to its knees while he delivered his people. And he proved that there is only one God, and his name is I Am. The Egyptians believed in a goddess called Wajet. She started out supposedly as the protector of Lower Egypt, but then when the Egyptian empire unified between north and south and became one big empire, she evolved and became the protector of all of Egypt. She was depicted in the beginning as a vulture. Now, it's an interesting choice of someone to be a god. Of, have you seen vultures? Pretty ugly. And they're usually pecking at dead carcasses on the side of the road in these parts of the world. Doesn't sound like a god to me. More like something dark and, and dirty and evil. But that's how they saw their God. And when the empire unified, she became the protector of all Egypt. And, and sometimes she was shown to have the head of a bird. Sometimes it was the head of a fly. Later it was the head of a cobra. And she was said to live in the swamps among the papyrus reeds. And Wajit was supposed to be Pharaoh's protector. With, all, with an all-seeing eye, she could see trouble coming, and she could warn Pharaoh. But none of that mattered, because this false god was impotent against the one true and living God of the Bible. And so when God sends swarms of flies and insects as the third and fourth plague of Egypt, she has nothing to stand against them. The first or the third plague, gnats, and then the fourth plague, flies. Now, the exact nature of the third plague is a little bit of a mystery to us. The Hebrew word 
it is most often translated as gnats. The word is kanim. And it either means gnats or fleas or lice. It can be any of those. And all of those would be awful. Any of those would be awful, right? Lice and fleas infest and they bite and they're nasty. Gnats swarm around your face and get in your eyes and in your nose. When I was a young teenager, about Abigail's age, I was in an organization called the Civil Air Patrol. And we used to meet on, at an airport in Warner Robins, Georgia. And it's sort of like the ROTC, but it's for the Air Force. And so you have to dress up in your dress blues and you stand at attention and you're not supposed to blink your eyes or move or scratch your head. You know, you have to stand perfectly still. Do you know anything about Warner Robins? It is below the gnat line. You've not, if you've lived in North Georgia all your life, you don't know about gnats. You think you do. But as soon as you go below the gnat line, they really get bad. And try standing at attention with gnats crawling all over your face. And you're not supposed to go or anything like that. And you're only 13. Oh, it's awful. But the Hebrew word kanim, which we usually translate gnats, also carries the idea of biting and stinging. I've not known any gnats that bit and sting. I think that's why the idea of fleas and lice come in. Can you imagine fleas and lice that could fly and swarm around you? Ugh, that's awful. And the fourth plague is flies. And we know about flies. They're a pretty bad nuisance in here during the warmer months. Especially out here when you're around a lot of cows and things like that. Man, the flies get really bad. And they, you shoo them and you try to kill them and you find you've killed 100 in a day. I tried to keep track of it one year. Just, you know, I mean, what else are you going to do? Have some fun with it. Killed 100 flies in a day. But, you know, a few years ago, we went on a mission trip to El Salvador. And they had flies there. I didn't really feel like they were any worse than they were in Georgia. But there was a thing about the flies in El Salvador that we learned the hard way while we were there. You know, it's gross when a fly lands on your food, right? But the flies in El Salvador have an amoeba inside them. And it gets on your food. And then you eat your food. And then the amoeba is inside you. And almost everybody on our team got the amoeba while we were there and had vomiting and diarrhea and nausea and the only way you get rid of it is uh, medicine. Now, here in Georgia, we don't want flies landing on our food, but it happens, you know, they'll and you shoo it away in just a couple of seconds. I mean, we were very diligent. We were putting napkins over everything and still somehow we were getting this amoeba. Now, imagine in Egypt, before they had modern medicine that they could just take to get rid of it. And living in a place near the Nile Delta where you got rain and, and, and water and then you got desert and you got flies and, and you're getting sick. What, I don't know. What could it, terrible things could it have caused to have these swarms of flies? Well, the Egyptian false god, Wajit, apparently didn't see all this coming. Even though she had the all-seeing eye. She didn't see this coming. She didn't warn Pharaoh, and she didn't do anything else to stop the gnats and the flies. Isn't she supposed to see everything? Isn't she supposed to be 
the protector of Pharaoh? Isn't she supposed to be the goddess who lives in the swamps where these insects live and breed? There's only one God. Most people are familiar with Jesus teaching that we should love our neighbor, right? Regardless of what time in the history of the world you've lived or what religion you are, even if you believed in religion at all, most people have thought Jesus' teaching that we should love our neighbor is a very noble principle to live up to. Jesus said, love your neighbor. And he said, this is the second most important commandment. Now, if that's the second most important commandment, what's the first? Well, he told us that as well. Jesus told us the most important commandment. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. There is only one God. All other gods are idols and false gods. They are nothing. And in order to truly love your neighbor, you have to start by loving God. Sadly, many people today in our modern contemporary world worship idols. There are some listening to this message today who worship idols. It may not be a statue, but you have turned a thing God created into the one you love more than God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think that we would realize that we have idols today too. People are often surprised to learn that Jesus taught more about money than any other subject. The word money is mentioned 70 times in the Gospels, whereas the word forgive is only mentioned 38 times. Hmm. And of 40 parables that Jesus taught, 11 of them are about money or use money to make a point. You see, Jesus knew something about human nature. He knew that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew 6, 21. And so he knew that greed and wealth and idolatry are a rampant part of human societies. And so he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and be enslaved by money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. People who worship the idol of wealth today do three things. 
They love it, they trust it, and they obey it. Let me look at those a little closer. People who worship wealth love money. They dream about it, about how to make more of it, about what it could do for them, about what it would feel like to be safe and secure with a lot of money to take care of yourself and your family. They imagine all the things that they could buy with the money. They may even be jealous of other people who have more money, and they may scheme how they can win the competition to be the wealthiest. They believe that having money will improve their social status. People will look up to them. People might listen to them. People will want to be them. People who love wealth are willing to sacrifice in order to, say, to have more money. Sacrifice. That's a worship word, isn't it? Some of the things that may sacrifice in order to gain more wealth, they may sacrifice their family. I mean, I see Rita shaking her head. How many people have you seen or known of that have, you know, they've, they've sacrificed. They've not been a good parent. They've not been a good spouse. All in the pursuit of having more money. People will sacrifice their relationship with God for the sake of more money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 warns, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving more money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Do you remember the story that Jesus told about the rich young ruler? Joanna, not even knowing what I was going to speak about today, she put that in her children's moment. So this rich young man, he comes to Jesus, and he obviously knows that there's something special about Jesus. He has words. He has a way about him that other religious teachers don't have. And so he comes to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And ultimately what Jesus said was, here's what you need to do. You're a good guy. You've been following the commandments. You've been doing all that. But if you really want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. And I imagine Jesus looking at this young man thinking, he's right there. He's so close to the kingdom of heaven. I want him to come and be my follower. But he knew that he had an idol in his life. And he told him, go sell all your possessions Give the money to the poor and come and follow me. But then the story turns out the young man went away and he was very sad because he had a lot of possessions. And he couldn't part with them. He could not. Even for the sake of eternal life, even for the sake of following the Son of God, he would not part with his possessions. People who worship wealth love their money. And people who worship wealth trust money to keep them safe. If they don't have enough, they feel vulnerable. They feel out of control. They feel like there's a disaster that's just around the corner that's going to get them, and they're not going to be able to get themselves out of it because they won't be able to afford it. And so they're constantly worried about how they will make it if something goes wrong. 
And they long to have enough money so that they can feel in control. Money makes them safe. Or they think it will make them safe if they have enough of it. They can handle whatever comes because they could buy their way out of their problems. But the problem is, money is usually not the answer that you think it is. Ask someone who was wealthy and unexpectedly lost it all. It happens. You remember the story Jesus told about the barn builder? Here's a man who had an especially large harvest and lots of extra. And so he said, what am I going to do with all of this extra? I know I'll build some bigger barns and I will store up my surplus and then I'll have it made. And then the Lord spoke to the man and said, you're a fool because tomorrow you're going to die. And then what's going to become of all of your wealth? People who worship wealth obey their God, their God, their master, which for them is their money, their wealth. It's ironic because people who think money will give them freedom and security find that their idol becomes a cruel master that actually enslaves them. They have money and they can't imagine living without it, like the rich young ruler who turned his back on Jesus. And often the wealthiest people still feel like they don't have enough and that they got to have more. And the more you have, the more you have to lose. And soon it becomes clear. Money is not serving rich people. Rich people are serving their money. And it's human nature, we... For some reason, we always want more and more and more. You know, when you're like 15, 16, you're just right on the edge. You're like, man, if I just had a car, I could drive. And then you get one and you're like, if I could just have a car that was reliable. And then you get one and everything's perfect, right? (laughs) No. Then you're like, if I just had a bigger car... (laughs) And then if I just had a car that everybody else wanted. And the person who constantly wants more, newer, better, bigger, becomes enslaved by an insatiable addiction and the things money can buy. And and what do slaves have to do? Slaves have to obey their master. Those deeply enslaved to the false god of wealth will lie, cheat, steal in order to get more. They will justify all kinds of evil to earn and protect their god. Tax evasion, fraud, embezzlement, extortion, bribery. They will hoard their wealth while others starve and they will say, it's not my problem. They should have managed their money better. People who worship wealth have broken both the first and the second most important commandment because they don't really care what God thinks and they don't really care about their neighbors either as long as they are rolling in the dough. 
But Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. By his word, God can make manna fall from the sky to satisfy our every need, as he did for the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. He can take, as Jesus did, five loaves of bread and two fishes, and he can feed thousands of people. Do you want to rely on God? Or would you prefer to make a God of your own choosing? to satisfy your needs. See, that's the crux of the problem. We want to be independent. God can give us everything we want, everything we need, but who wants to have to depend on Him? I'd rather be my own man. I'd rather make things myself. I'd rather do it my way. I don't want to, be, be, I don't want to have to be beholden to Him. And that's the root of the problem. I remember our story when Gavin was a little boy, and um, it's funny how much you learn from little kids. And uh, we were sitting in the car together, and I had a bag of Doritos. And, you know, kids were like, he wanted Doritos. And, and I just decided, he was probably like two years old, really little. And I just decided, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give him as much as he wants. If he wants to eat the entire big bag of Doritos, I'm going to give him all of them. One by one, I'm going to give him one by one. And I start, you know, giving him one, but he wanted the bag. I was like, I'm not giving you the bag, but just ask for one and I'll give it to you. But he was not satisfied. He wanted to hold the bag himself. That is an image of us standing before God, our Father in heaven. He will give us everything if we ask, but we don't want to ask. We just want to hold the bag. (laughs) And we have to break that habit. Greed is a sneaky, sneaky sin. They say it's one of the seven deadly sins. And I think one of the reasons it's so deadly is because it's so hidden. Greed is rampant in our culture. And yet, so few people think that greed is a problem for them. I'm not greedy. (laughs) It's someone else is greedy. It's that greedy person over there. That's the problem. Here's a simple test. Do you obey God's command to tithe? Tithing is giving 10% of your income to God through the church. It is, in the Bible, the minimum standard God gave that people are supposed to give to the church, give to God through the church. According to nonprofitsource.com, the average church-going Christian only gives about 2 to 3% of their income to the church. And only 5 out of 100 people in America, Christians, actually obey God's command to give the minimum. And this is in the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. 5 out of 100 now, don't, sh- don't turn me off, because <laughs> I know whenever a preacher starts talking about money and starts talking about tithing, people start getting uncomfortable and maybe even angry and start making all kinds of excuses, all kinds of arguments. 
you know, well, I give to this or I give to that and I don't have to. That was what they said in the Old Testament. The New Testament is different and on and on and on. But the fact is, people want to justify themselves. They want to say, well, I don't give 10%, but I've got a good reason. And the fact is, you don't want to give a tithe. Or you're ashamed that you don't give the tithe, and you make excuses about it. Could it be that instead you are protecting an idol? Something that's dear and a core something in your heart. But one thing is certain. You're not obeying the one true God who said, give a tenth. Now, God is a God of grace. He's patient. He's good. He's loving. He's faithful. He's kind. When we were still sinners, He came as Jesus, and he died on the cross. Now, it's not that we deserved that gift, but we desperately need it. Christ gave his life for us while we were still sinners. He didn't say, give a tenth, and then I'll do it. He says, I'm coming to save you. I'm going to die for you so that we can be forgiven. When we repent, and turn from our sin and turn to God. Repentance means to turn away from sin, turn away from disobedience, turn away from our false gods, and turn to the one true and living God who said, I am who I am. And who also gave His life for us on the cross. Now aren't you glad that Jesus didn't give to us the way we give to Him? How would you feel if Jesus only gave 2.5% to you? That would still be more than we deserve. How much did he give? Did he only give 10% of his life and 10% of his blood on the cross? Of course not. You can't die only 10%. (laughs) He died for our sake. And therefore, even if we give 10% of our income, which for many of us seems like so much, we'd still be 90% short. Because Jesus gave it all. And since He gave it all, don't you want to give it all for Him?